it is good to be back this week with you. I would say we missed you all. But, no, <laughs> but we, no, we did. We, we missed you all. It's good to be back. In case you didn't know where we went, you're just like, well, where are they this week? Um, we had the chance last week to go to Windshape Retreat. You might not have ever heard of Windshape or Windshape Foundation. Windshape is the foundation started by Truett Cathy, who is the creator, not of the chicken, but of the chicken sandwich, Chick-fil-A. Uh, that organization started the Windshape Foundation, and they have on the campus of Barry College in Rome, Georgia, uh, a retreat center. It's called Windshape Retreat. And four times a year, they have what they call the Pastors Refresh and Renew Retreat. So I heard about it, don't remember how, and said, well, let's see what's going on. And we went up there, and it is, first of all, just a beautiful place. Um, if you've never been to that part of the world or to Barry College in Rome, it's in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. I think the our Smokies or whatever they're called up there, whatever those mountains are that are up there. Um, and on the campus of Barry College is about a 26,000-acre wildlife preserve. So really remarkable. I think Barry is the, uh, I know actually, it's the largest continuous, contiguous, which one is it? Contiguous? Continuous. Continuous. Are you sure? It seems, oh, you think it's contiguous. Okay. We're going to have a business meeting and vote on it. No. It, it's a big campus. It's the largest, like, single property campus in the U.S. I think Texas A&M has more property overall, but it's scattered in fields and different things. So it's a huge thing. Now, here's the cool thing for us people in the Florida Keys whose main wildlife sighting is the ever-popular iguana. <laughs> At Barry College, there are about 2,000 students. And on the campus of Barry College, which Windshape re Retreat sits on the top of the Mount Barry campus, there are 26 deer per student on the campus. So they said, you know, when we came, they were like, we really want to see a deer. And the people that were our hosts said, Pardon us if we don't seem excited, because they are everywhere, and it's really remarkable when you're driving down the, the highway or, or, or up to the campus, or when you're walking through one of the trails, you four here, five there, just doing their thing. They're, they're so beautiful. You do know what deer are, right? Okay, just making sure. Some of you are like, yep, going to hunt them in a few months. That's another thing. Anyway, so, so we really enjoyed that. The, the purpose of this retreat um, is really unique. They say we want you to rest. And I realized this morning after I got up and started my morning routine and opened the dishwasher and started putting away the dishes, it had been a week since I had either washed or cooked or unloaded or touched in any cleaning way a dish. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was just great. So they, they spoiled us up there. We had... Uh, even though it was a pastor's retreat, no agenda. The only quasi-required things for that week were breakfast at 8.30, lunch at 12.30, and dinner at 6.30. That was it. And those were even optional. But we are preachers, and we're Baptists, so they really weren't. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it was good. And for the record, no, it was not Chick-fil-A three meals a day for the entire time. Um, it was a variety of very good stuff. So so we had a great time. They actually, that retreat center, as I said, does a lot of things. You might hear about that in the future because 
the setting is gorgeous, the property is gorgeous, it's just wonderful. One of my fears, I gotta be honest, you probably aren't surprised by this, one of my fears going up there is that we weren't gonna be the only ones there. <laughs> there were gonna be other pastors, and I've met some, and I was worried. You know, I'm like, okay, so we're gonna, and so we get in, and they show us, here's the dining room, and it's this massive table that was had 26 seats because there were going to be 26 of us there, 13 pastors and their wives. And you had to sit close to these people. I don't know if you ever sat close to a pastor. It's scary. <laughs> it is scary. No. And, uh, just because, you know, here it is. got to go up there. And I've been around pastors before, and I was like, it's going to be one of those typical things. What I, I probably told you this, but I know I've told you this before. You get around them, and we start pegging each other, right? Where do you fit? I was shocked. I did not hear anybody all week say the typical pastor, tell me about your church, how many people, are none of that. I think because they were all just so tired of life in church world, I don't know, and they were just happy to be away. It was really a nice time, so thank you for the opportunity to go, and I hope uh, you survived the week without us. You look pretty hale and hearty. I'm going to go with contiguous backing up okay okay fair enough well I say all that to, to kind of launch us into what we're doing I think it's gonna it's a little odd it feels a little disjointed for me I don't know if it does for you we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes looking at different things over the last several weeks obviously not last week when I wasn't here so I'm gonna kind of pick up and end that whole line of thought and teaching or whatever today. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll also throw most of the scriptures up on the screen. Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book. It's not the most encouraging book. It's kind of a downer of a book. The theme of the whole book seems to be summed up in the word that shows up over and over again. Uh, in the NIV, it's translated meaningless. In most translations, it's vanity, vanity, vanity. Life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. No, nothing matters. Are you encouraged yet today? Yes. And that's kind of how he throws this stuff at us, which is odd because it's coming from Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of the greatest king of Israel, David, the man who built the temple that became the centerpiece of Israel's worship in the city of Jerusalem, and is still an object of concern and hope for the people uh, of Israel. And so this man who had so much going for him, who early in his life was given the opportunity by God basically to, to make a request, and I will give it to you, ask not for wealth or power or, or any of the things we might typically think to ask for. He asked for wisdom, the ability to know right from wrong and to do good. And God said, because you have asked such a great thing. I'm not only going to give you that, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to expand your kingdom. I'm going to do all this other stuff for you. A man who wrote the book of Proverbs or large portions of the book of Proverbs with all of these things of wisdom that help us understand and navigate life. And then we get to the book of Ecclesiastes and we realize that even with all of that going for him, Solomon's life derailed in some ways. He pursued things, even with that wisdom, that were not beneficial to him. And as he thought about the ways his life had turned, the things he had chased after, he came up with that refrain, meaningless, everything is meaningless, vanity of vanities. And, and over and over again, he says that. And we've looked at some of the things. He, 
for a while in his life, chased pleasure. He wanted to be entertained or amused or diverted from the cares of life. And he found out no matter how hard he went after that, it ended up being meaningless. He chased success. He, he tried through his wealth, through his means, through his power to surround himself with all the trappings of, of success. He was a driven person. And he found out no matter how much he drove himself and no matter how much he had of the trophies of his success, ultimately it was meaningless. And today I want to look at another one of the things that he realized led to emptiness and, and it's found here in, in chapter 4. Let me, let me talk about this to, before we get into the, the scriptures particularly. Uh, I'm assuming most of you here have been to a restaurant, correct? Okay, good. So I'm talking to a, a friendly crowd. You've been to a restaurant. Nice to go to a restaurant. Nice to eat out. Nice to let somebody else cook for you and, and do the dishes for you and all that sort of thing. But what's interesting to me is if you were to think about how restaurants work, when you are seated at a restaurant, you're often uncomfortably close to other people. Now, the odd part is that even though you might be that close to people you've never met and don't know, after a few minutes, you don't even think about it. And you just have your conversation. In fact, in those settings, people can have some pretty personal conversations just a few feet away from a complete stranger. You've maybe noticed that. If you're like me, you've maybe eavesdropped on a few. Forgive me, Lord. <laughs> I think those people really need to go to church. No, I didn't say that. Um, you've been there. And, and it's, I think there's a kind of the idea, I don't know if this is an official term or one I read somewhere, but it's called the restaurant effect. That when you get enough people in a room, even though they're uncomfortably close together, to have personal conversations because of the general noise of the ambient conversations in the room, you kind of forget about that for a few minutes. And it, it reminds me that, that a lot of times the restaurant effect can happen in this place we call a church. Now, not because you're like talking to each other, but because you can be really close to people. You can be physically in proximity to other people around even some shared ideas and values, and at the same time, totally miss any sort of connection to those people around you. And, and so what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes here in chapter 4 is that Solomon realizes a lack of connection to other people ultimately can make life quite meaningless. And, and he says it, in, in a variety of ways, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7, he says this, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. So here's our theme. Here's, our, here's, here's the thing he says over and over again. Verse 8, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. So, so we see the idea there that, that this individual is, is a, maybe a hard worker, a hard charger at success, might be one of the things he's chasing after. And he says as he's pursuing success, as he looks around, there's nobody to share it with. There's nobody that's in it with him. He's kind of all alone. And though he might have everything possible that could show he's really good at what he does, ultimately when he thinks about it's just me and me, there's a problem. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's a chasing after the wind, as he says elsewhere. Verse, verse uh, 
uh, 9, he goes on and says this. So, having said that, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then he throws in this last part, which is sort of a different idea. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Solomon, in thinking about his life and thinking about the things that mattered to him, ultimately came to the conclusion that he needed somebody or some bodies to share it with, which is a little bit ironic for a guy that had how many wives? A lot. Hundred, over a thousand between wives and concubines, and he felt all alone. I probably shouldn't say any of the things that I'm thinking. So we'll just move on. I mean, you would imagine a king, not only in the, in the arena of, of his, his life with his wives and concubines, but you would expect, as a man of power and influence, there were others that were pressing in on him. They want to get close to this guy. They want to know him. They want to be his friend. I mean, if you want to have a friend, it might as well be the king, right? King's a good friend to have. If you ever have trouble, maybe he'll, he'll help you out. And so it wasn't for lack of people around him, close to him, in proximity to him. It probably also wasn't for lack of people trying to get to know him. But as he thought about his life, as he thought and and, in many ways looked over all that he had done, all that, that symbolized his power and wealth and success, he realized in that moment he felt awfully alone. I think it's no surprise that you can feel awfully alone, even around a lot of people. In fact, I would guess, even though this isn't a massive church, there's in the crowd this size, there may be someone here that even among a hundred or so people feels mighty lonely right now. Feels like you're kind of just by yourself, though surrounded by people. That's not a fun way to go. And I think what Solomon hints at is that two are better than one, that, that there's benefit to having not just proximity to people, but relationship, intimacy, closeness with others. And this is something, as I said, in church world, sometimes we can experience by being close to people physically, but not close to people in relationship. And that's a dangerous place to be. Because here's what I found in my life, and I think other people have found as well. When you feel alone, you begin to do things that make you more isolated. Have you noticed that about yourself? Like, like I feel alone. So I don't think anybody really understands me or understands what I'm going through or understands what I'm dealing with. They don't understand that this has affected me the way it has. They don't get that right now I have these feelings. And, and I'm in church, after all. One of the dangers that, that happens in church world as well is to come to church, there's this idea that you got to have it together. Maybe you've never felt that, but I think a lot of people have when they come to church world. For instance, we've gone around this morning and we've talked to each other, and I'm going to guess there have been a lot of conversations that go like this. Hey, good to see you this morning. How you doing? I'm 
I'm great. I'm fine. Doing good. You might have had a fight with your wife on the way to church. Oh, uncomfortable laughter. No. You know, it might have been the worst morning possible. Yeah, and then you make up for it in the showy way. It might have been an, just a, an awful morning. Some of you have to get kids ready to go to church. Isn't that fun? Kids are a blessing from the Lord, aren't they? Yes, they are, except on Sunday when you're trying to get ready to go to church, or Monday when you're trying to get ready to go to school. Then things get a little ugly, and, it, and things just it's falling apart, and it's like, ah, and it's just, it's hard sometimes. And then you come to this room, and can you admit that? Can you actually say that out loud? Can you tell somebody else that? Now, I don't necessarily mean you should just go up to a random stranger when they say, how are you doing? And they say, well, let me tell you. <laughs> Probably also not the best plan. But more particularly, as you think about your life, or maybe if this is your church home, this church body, is there someone in this room, in our church family, that if you were feeling that way, you would feel comfortable enough to go up and have those kind of conversations with? Or is it the restaurant effect? Yeah, I'm here and I've known them for X number of years and we might have eaten together, we might have even gone out together, we've been in a small group together, we've done a Bible study together, uh, we've worked on a committee together, we've served in ministry together, but, but I can't just really tell them how I feel. I can't just really admit that this is going on in my life. Even though Scripture's clear, Solomon is clear, two are better than one. Because when you have that other, you get good return for your work. Or if you fall down, the other one's there to help you up. Or if you're cold, lonely, would be a great kind of metaphorical way of looking that, at that. That other one's there to keep you warm. Why is that so important for us? Here is, is how it works. When you are lonely and you begin to do the activity that sort of even more isolates you from others, it provides a fertile ground for the enemy to do all sorts of stuff. It's sort of like this cloak of, of secrecy. We don't think of it that way. We don't think when I feel lonely, when I don't think anybody understands, when I don't think anybody understands what I'm going through, when, when nobody really gets it, that we're kind of hiding. We think of it as just, I, I, I don't feel safe, so I have to back away, or I don't feel confident, so I have to kind of hide. But when we have those more isolating thoughts, those increasingly isolating activities where we pull away from people, not only physically or not even physically, but emotionally and spiritually, the enemy under that cloak of isolation begins to have fertile ground to bring up all sorts of stuff, those habits, those behaviors, those things that you wouldn't want to tell anybody that now maybe you're seeping back into make it even harder the next time you have an opportunity to open up to open up because now you feel even further apart and even if you it was to admit something here is tough but when you've taken two steps over here it's even harder to open up and when you take two steps over here you're just increasingly putting that distance between you and another and you think ah 
there's no way. You know, on the opposite hand, when there's something and someone that we can have that conversation with, when there's that thing that's got us and it's pulling us apart and it's pulling us away, it's kind of isolating us, when we have that person we can go to and say, listen, can we talk? Can we go get a cup of coffee? Can we go out to lunch? Can you come over? Uh, maybe that's a better situation because it's a little more private. I just, I just need somebody to talk to. And you begin to open up and you begin to shine a little light into that place. When, you, when you're known, when your struggle is known, when you're cared for in a way that you know you can open up to somebody and they won't run out the door screaming, but they'll pray for you and they'll encourage you and they'll help you through the struggle. Solomon would say two are better than one because all of that other stuff by yourself is just fertile ground. I think about the creation account. Creation account's a fascinating thing and in the book of Genesis it gives us this picture of God creating everything. And as you read through it, there's a refrain that pops up over and over and over again. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God looked and saw, and it was good. And we go through this, the days of creation, and there's this momentum that builds each successive day. Each thing created is a little more complicated, a little more intricate, a little more beautiful. And each time when God surveys his handiwork, he says, it is good, and there was evening and morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day, and you just this overwhelming sense of the goodness of the created order. And then into that, having created all that is, God creates man, Adam, created in his image. He, he takes the dust of the earth and forms him, and he, he breathes the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. The, the height, the, the, the image of God as the Genesis account tells us, is imbued in mankind and human beings. The highest thing created. And God surveys his handiwork. And what does he say then? It is not good. And in a culture where this was read and this was memorized, this was a, an oral culture, everything was said, that would have been like slamming on the brakes into a story of good and good and good. You would notice that. You couldn't help but notice that in the midst of this narrative of the goodness of the created order enters something that's opposed to all that's happened before. Not good, this is. It is, I sound like Yoda. Not good, anyway. All of this was good. And then we get here, and it is not good and what was it specifically that was not good what's the first thing in all the created order that god would say it is not good for man to be alone and as if to reinforce that not goodness what does god do it's a remarkable story he parades all the things he's created before adam all of the beasts of the, of the field and he he allows adam the privilege to name all of these creatures. Remarkable thought that Adam would, and that, that would take a while, you know, you would think, there's a lot of, how many species of beetles are there? Would come with all those, those names. Nonetheless, it kind of creates, and, and the, the, as you're reading the stories, you're hearing this account, what you're seeing in Adam is what God saw, it is not good for man to be alone. Adam begins to feel. Because having seen all of these things, Adam comes to the realization, yet there's nothing in all of this created order that's suitable, that's like me. 
There's an emptiness with each passing critter that overcomes Adam until the highlight of the story. Adam goes into a deep sleep and God takes a rib and he fashions woman. Now that must have been a moment for Adam. I mean, after you've seen armadillo. Now there's a critter for you, isn't it? Tasty roadkill, but not a good friend. When you've seen, well, let's just go back to where we started, iguana. <laughs> no, thank you. All th- and then you wake up, and God says, I have a present for you. And here's Eve. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You will be called woman. You know the joke, right? Yep, some of you do, yes. Adam woke up and was like, whoa, man, woman. Yeah, okay, there you go. Woman. It takes a minute to sweep the room, apparently. <laughs> Whoa. This is, and, and finally, having been confronted and shown all of these things that weren't suitable, Adam is given the helper suitable. And it just makes sense. And it seems like even though all of us know that, even though all of us realize those basic principles, it's still sometimes easier to isolate than to open up. It's still easier to back away. And, and, and here's my, like, can I do a pet peeve thing? Okay, good. I was gone last week. I'm allowed one pet peeve. Is that the rule? We have this pseudo-intimacy in our world. You may have heard of it. It's called social media. Fascinating thing, social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I did Snapchat. Any other Snapchat people? Only because my daughter does Snapchat more than, than other stuff, so I can, like, you know, see silly pictures of her that way. But nonetheless, um, all of these things that, that we relate to each other, and we call them social as if online we can be social but what happens often in that abundance or overabundance of social media is we aren't actually coming, becoming closer, we're becoming more isolated. In fact, I have a video I want you to watch that I think sums up. I didn't make this. It's one of these Christian organizations that kind of create these to, to, to show some of the things. I want, I want you to watch this to see if you can relate to some of the emotion that you see particularly in this video. Facebook. What's new? Good morning, Facebook. What's new? Hey, someone commented on my photo. Ugh, look at that. Rachel Klein is showing off her new job again. What do you know? Loving the new beer belly, dude. You wear it well. Ha ha. To London this time. What's that? 
many times overseas this year. Well, Brad, some of us don't have the luxury of spending two hours at the gym every day, you jerk. Looks like she's living the dream. Not that I wouldn't like to. I see Meredith has a new outfit, again. Oh, look at this. Jason's getting his master's degree. Gosh, I really like it, too. There you go, buddy. I wonder who makes it. One of us actually went and did it. Guess she's got money to burn. Oh, Blake, Cal, and Ryan all went out last night. Thanks for the invitation, guys. Well, since they're having another baby. Guess I'm not as good of friends with them as I thought. Guess getting pregnant is no problem for some people. So sick of gym posting. Oh my gosh, Katie. About how great it is. Husband is perfect. Free. Your children are perfect. Good for you. Whole family is perfect. Why are you just perfect? And you've got artistic professional photos taken in a field somewhere to prove it. Oh man, I love this guy's design work. Oh, look at this kid's birthday it's just party. So good. Bounce house. Slip and slide. Effortless. The expectations are so high. Like a playing peewee baseball to his major league. How could I even afford something like this? Why even bother? Why do I even bother? What? They gave it to Cynthia? They interviewed for that position like three times. That was a shoe. What a fabulous meal out for Rick and Jeff. I needed that promotion. Yeah, I'd be that happy too if I were eating at Bistro. I'm gonna be stuck doing the same thing for the rest of my career. I wonder why John never initiates date nights. What am I doing wrong? Seems like Rick is pretty good at it. Why is life so much easier for everyone else? Why is life so much easier for everyone else? Why do I even go on Facebook? Why do I even go on Facebook? And so if you were to look, they might have hundreds of friends. And even in those relationships, what's the, and I, I know there's positives from social media, don't get me wrong, but I think this is pretty accurate for a lot of people. When they look at, at the life somebody else, because here's the thing, I hate to break this to you, I hate to be the one. The life that people have on Facebook is not their real life. Because you came to church and somebody asked you how you're doing and you said fine and you were face to face. How much easier it is to lie when you're like on the other side of the screen somewhere and you're like, how's this going to look when I post it? Uh, you know, I mean, we take pictures. We take 47 pictures. Oh, and we look at them. We go, okay, that, don't look, try it again. Okay, if you put the, it's like this is the angle apparently that you look the best. I've learned this from people. I'm not saying who. It's better. And, and then you take five of them and you pick the best one right? And not only that, you can take that picture and run it through a filter that, that softens the edges or changes the color or the contrast so that it's not just, it's, it's, it's not even real anymore. Why? Why do we spend that time? Because we want to present an image at times that portrays us a certain way because we are probably at some level scared what people would do if they saw the real us. Or, put in the context of this, we don't have anybody else that we're confident enough to show the real us. And so it's easier to get likes or clicks or friends by being just a little filtered.
one of the things that happens at this retreat center that we were at um, is they do counseling for couples in crisis. And, and so you go up there, and they've, they've got it set up um, pretty remarkably well. Uh, not, not just in kind of the appointments with, with the detail. I mean, they, they thought of everything. But when we say couples in crisis, they, they take that seriously. For instance, the rooms are set up. There's a bedroom, a living area, and a bedroom. So if a husband and wife go, they can actually sleep in separate bedrooms but still have a common living, er- living area because they don't want to take for granted in that crisis. They're comfortable enough being that close in one bed and bath area. And what they do is at the end of this week of counseling, when you go and, and they, they work with you for this week, um, they, I don't know if this was something they started or just happened, but couples would write on the walls of the closets. And when they remodeled the place most recently, they have hanging all up and down the hallways of the retreat center chunks of the walls of the closets with the things the, the husband or wife or together they have written on there about how through this week, through the, the time they got to spend away from normal life, through the help of the counselors and the support staff there, one of the things that I saw more than once in these notes was I finally got to be real. I finally was able to be my true self with my husband or my wife. I finally was able to tell them the thing that I've been hiding for so long. And time and again, that moment of transparency was the moment of breakthrough where God begins to heal fractured relationships and marriages and put them back together again. It's remarkable just to read these things. So they still do that. They actually have now, (laughs) they got smart. They put panels on the wall they can remove when they're full and markers in the closet. And they encourage, you know, go right on the wall now. It's okay, really. We'll we'll clean it up. Um, So it's just one of the things they do. And and I think about that. What a difference it made for those couples when they realized they weren't, in fact, alone as they felt. By by looking around a, a table at five or ten other couples, They recognized there were others struggling with some of the same things. And by the help of someone who, through counseling, through uh, the Bible, through Scripture, was able to help them understand the reality that that God, in spite of whatever's going on, loved them and wanted to bring healing, breakthrough happened. And now I know in church we're not only dealing, and today I'm not only talking about marriage issues, I'm talking about person-to-person I'm talking about the reality, what breakthrough would happen in my life and in your life if we had those other people that we could be honest and real with, that that we could share our struggle and and tell them our, our true self, our true struggle, our true feelings, and allow them to speak encouragement to us. It would make a massive difference. In fact, Paul in the in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 kind of shows us a picture of what God has in mind with the church and and he says in chapter 2 verse 19 this, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. I love that picture. Now, if you were to back up a few verses, you'd realize he's talking about Jews and Gentiles who in that day were about as far apart as you could get. 
Jews had wanted no part with Gentiles. Jews were the people of God. They were God's chosen people. They were unique and special to God. And the Gentiles weren't welcome. In fact, even in the way they laid out that temple that Solomon built, the Gentiles could only go so far, but the Jews could go the next step further. There was a division. There was a difference. And in this passage, Paul says, in Christ, those divisions and differences are gone so that you are no longer foreigners, you're no longer outsiders, you're no longer aliens, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. And he he keeps in the next verse that train of thought uh, when he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. In Him, you two are being built together. Uh, There's this, this train of thought in the New Testament that emphasizes the interconnectedness and the need for that interconnectedness of God's people. It recognizes that each of us here is unique, right? Look around. You are special. You're the only one. You're the only one like you. Isn't that how the song goes? Nobody else like us. No twins here today, right? Maybe not. You're each different. Isn't that cool? Like, you don't look in the mirror and go, is that Sally or is that me? You pretty much know who you are. But it's not just the physical features we're talking about. The, the stream of thought in the New Testament is that not only are you different physically, but you are different in who you are in your relationship with God and how that expresses itself through you. For instance, there are people here that are really good at building things. Like, they can take something, a stack of materials, and in a matter of time, create something else with it. That's remarkable to me. There are people here that are good at fixing things. When people like me who want to be good at making things try and have to call the people that are good at fixing things to put it back together, right? There are people here that are good at caring for other people, whether it be in a medical profession whether it be in a teaching profession, isn't like teaching high schoolers just glorified babysitting at times, maybe? Is that right? Not really. It's a little more than that, I know. But, but there's that caring for people aspect of teaching. There's the caring for people aspect of anybody in any service industry. If you're, if you're working in the restaurant industry or the hotel industry, aren't you caring for people? You're good at that. And we could, we could list thing after thing after thing that that God has uniquely put each of us here with those gifts and abilities. And the the emphasis of this passage, and and really a greater of the New Testament, is that you bring all that together and some amazing things happen, particularly that we are being built together for a purpose, to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You know, we, we talk about the idea of church not being a building. In fact, there's a whole idea of that the the word we use that is church 
is about a place, not about what the, the New Testament or the Greek word for the church is, ecclesia, the called out ones. But what's at issue here isn't where we meet, but who we are that meet wherever we meet. That God puts each of us here particularly and uniquely to build us together as a body, as a, a unit, as a house, different things are mentioned, as a family so that God's spirit can dwell in us. What happened in the Old Testament after Solomon built the temple and God came to dwell in it? It's quite a party. I mean, there's thunder and lightning and smoke and voices and all this stuff happens. And everybody who looked around looked at the temple and went, God is there. I don't understand how or why, but I cannot deny God is there. And that's the picture I think Paul is painting. As we build as we are built together as the church, the Spirit of God then can come to dwell in us and people will look and no matter what they might have expected, it'll be hard to deny that God is there because of how His people have become connected. Solomon said two are better than one for all of these reasons. Paul says consequently, you're not strangers and aliens. Even though you might come in here and feel like nobody can really know me, nobody can really understand me, that's not the case. And the other implication is nobody out there has to stay a stranger or alien. See, what happens, and here's the, the, the secondary danger of that sort of isolation, is when we isolate ourselves in here and think nobody can understand me and we become sort of our separate camps and we pull away, even though we might be in the same place, doing the same thing, at the same time we're kind of isolated, the the implication that begins to to be put out isn't that we're together and God's spirit dwells here it's that when people on the outside look in they see that isolation that dividedness and and they think if I go in there if they don't understand each other there's no way they're going to deal with me they can't deal with because usually in church world usually most of the time we in church world are trying to be good, yes? We want to be good. That's what they told us growing up, right? Now you be good, little Charles. You be good, and God will love you. And so we try to be good, at least when people are watching. And even when we're trying to be good, when there's that, that pull of isolation, people that aren't a part of us, that aren't trying to be good, I'm thinking, I don't want any part of that. Because if those who are trying to be good are like that, what are they going to do with me who's not trying to be good? See, together, not isolated, open, honest, aware of who we are. Even with our faults is the place where God then begins to work. Isn't that the case? Isn't that, isn't that kind of a saying that, that goes through different communities? Like the first step to getting better is admitting you have a problem. You don't want to admit you have a problem or if you've isolated yourself to the point where you have no one to admit that to, then there's not much to build on for getting better. And so Solomon would say it, two are better than one. Find that individual, find those people. Hey, why do we have small groups? 
Well, one reason is because it's a great chance to study Scripture. But a secondary reason, and maybe even more important, is it puts you, this is a great place to come. I kind of like it. I'm glad you showed up today. Makes me happy. It's no fun to stand up here with nobody out there. I've done it before when the, when the tape didn't work. I'm like, oh, I better record that one because people are asking for it, and I preach it in an empty room. I lock the doors, so if anybody comes in, I hear them. But I think I've been caught before. It's really embarrassing. But anyway, it's no fun. I'm glad you're here. But as much fun as this is, at least to me, the reason we have the small groups is because in that dynamic around the table, around a piece of scripture, you're more likely to find the opportunity to open up. You're more likely to find that commonality. It's a safer space, I hope, where you can share some of the things. You know, maybe not with the whole group, but maybe you build that relationship that afterwards you can find that person. You know, we, we started this, this series with the idea of Solomon saying, with all I had going for me, here are some things I learned that got me off track, that helped me just ruin the good in my life. And so we end up this process by saying to you, here's the, here's the big thing that ultimately I think worked against him. Solomon found out the more isolated he became, the easier it was to ruin all that God wanted to do in his life. It's the same thing for us. The more isolated we become, the easier it is to ruin the work of God in our life. On contrast, the more together we get, the more able God is able to, to move and live and work in and through us by his spirit. So look around. Seriously, you can look around. I won't think you're not paying attention. Just look around. There are some pretty amazing people in this room. You can keep looking. It's okay. It's going to take a few minutes. <laughs> keep looking. I'll let you know. Just keep looking. Keep looking. I'm just wasting time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> keep looking. There's some pretty remarkable people in this room. I'll venture a guess that there are some people in this room right now that life is good. And I'll venture a guess that there are some people in this room right now that life stinks. There are some people in this room that are thinking nobody could really understand what I'm dealing with. And there are some other people in this room that went through what you're dealing with and are probably wondering, is there someone here that I might could help through a tough time? But I'm not going to pass out a piece of paper and have everybody write, I went through this so I can help somebody and have re the rest, you know, match it up in a computer or something. This is your homework. There's that person in this room that's been where you are, probably felt just as alone, and maybe just as hopeless. And God healed, and God answered, and God worked. And maybe God brought you here for the simple reason to find that person, to connect with another human being that helps you realize you're not alone and it's not hopeless.
So find that place. Find that arena where you can make those connections is my encouragement. Ask God to, to connect you to that person, to put you in the same row at church, to put you in the same Bible study group, to put you in the same restaurant out on the town on a Thursday afternoon when you didn't think you'd run into anybody. And see if you don't learn what Solomon learned, that two are a lot better than one. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in your wisdom, you made us for relationship. That even from the creation account, you demonstrated that it is not good for us to be alone. And that you show us in that account, knowing that need that we have, that you can provide that friend, that confidant, that encourager, that person to support and love and stand beside and walk with you through whatever we need. God, I pray today for us as, as your body, as your church, may... May we allow the words that Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 to be true of us. May we come together, be built together into that body that you can, by your Spirit, take up residence in in a way that will be obvious to those looking. Lord, we come to our time of response, and, and I pray, Lord, that you would Help us first to be honest with you. To admit to you, Lord, we feel alone. We're struggling. There are things in our life that are difficult or we're not happy with habits that we need to have broken or, or whatever the case may be, may we start by being honest with you. And I thank you that when we turn to you in faith and in honesty, when we confess to you our faults and our struggles, you tell us in 1 John chapter 1 that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to not only to forgive, but to cleanse and restore and heal. And I pray that that will be the first step for all of us today. Lord, thank you that you're still at work in this world, that you work in the lives of your people, that you use us to encourage each other. Lord, we give you now these moments. May you have your way, I pray in Christ's name.